What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 115 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I have Derek Murphy. Derek Murphy is a very, very gifted writer. He's a special guest of mine who brought the heat. He is somebody I introduce as not a man of many words, I believe I said, and then he just gave it. The whole episode just dropped so much value for us. If you are a writer out there, if you're even thinking about writing a book, this is an episode for you. This guy is a master writer. He has been writing professionally for many years. He's been a very successful self-publisher for many years. It funds his lifestyle on the road. He's been traveling for the last four years with his wife, lives in great places all around the world. He's been living outside of America for the last 20 years. But I was just like floored. He's somebody I spent some time with in that retreat that I've referenced in, in past episodes. And he was quiet. And I didn't realize why he was so quiet until this episode when I realized he does all his creative work at night. So when we met in the mornings, he was just really tired and quiet. But he's somebody who just has a wealth of knowledge on how to write and profit from books and you self-publish them. So again, if you are a sell, if you're an author or somebody who wants to write a book, this is a must listen. And he gave us a very special treat. He has a course, how to write books that sell. And he's giving all of my listeners a coupon code that I'll put in the show notes below that gives you 91% off. So please, if you're a writer, you're somebody who wants to learn the format, the structure on how to write, create successful and self-published books on your own. This is the episode for your Derek Murphy is the man. And also just to be clear, this is not an advertisement. I am not making any money off of this plug. This is a legit, genuine plug because Derek is that awesome and he delivers so much value that if I ever choose to write a book, if I ever decide to become an author, this is the guy I'm going to. This is the guy I will pay any amount of money to sit with and just have him teach me his wizard ways about how he produces so much great content and makes a lot of money doing it. So that's why I am so passionate about this episode because he really is gifted at what he does. And it's not just in the creative side of writing books. It's also in the business side. And he gives a lot of great stuff away from for free on his website, but he's offering this badass bonus for all my listeners. So that's why I'm so excited about this. And with that said, if you're a first-time listener, please pull out your phone and hit the subscribe button. If you like this episode, please rate it and comment on it at the end of this episode. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Derek Murphy. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I have Derek Murphy on the show, a gentleman I've met here in Chiang Mai, Thailand, who is... Not a man of many words when we are in, in our group sessions, but somebody who delivers a lot of value within the group when asked specific questions, because I know he helped one of my good friends, another individual on the podcast, uh, Nathan Rose, with his book writing and, and stuff that he's doing. And Derek is an author of science fiction or nonfiction fiction books um, and makes a great living at it. It's been on Digital Nomad for five years, living abroad for over 20. And I thought I'd bring him on the show just to share his story with you all. So welcome to the show, Derek. Great. Uh, nice to meet you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, dude. Has anyone ever nicknamed you D-Rock before? Um, someone has tried, uh, or Decker, a long time ago. Okay. Um, but it's such a short name that there's not really a point. So it doesn't Same syllables. Uh, no, I don't really have a nickname that's stuck. <laughs> okay, that's cool, man. You're originally from Oregon. Mm-hmm. And um, what was life growing up like for you in Oregon? Um, I idealize it a lot because when you live abroad, you kind of picture Oregon as, you know, trees and mountains. So I, I always dream of like going back to that lifestyle and getting the cabin in the woods and everything. Um, we go back maybe once a year to see family and stuff. I think Oregon, Portland, especially, it's really a home for a lot of creative people. So one of the things I say about Portland, especially now, um, and there's, you know, if you watch this show Portlandia, it's not just me who says this, this kind of thing, but there's a lot of, um, a lot of artists or creative people who love to do their passion, but kind of struggle to make it a business. So there's a lot of like older people who are still working on their craft, but they don't make any money at it. So they have full-time jobs and they, they do their passion project or their hobbies. 
um, a lot of creative people, but not a lot of like, not a lot of people who can scale it. Um, and I think this is true for a lot of creative people that being able to bridge the gap between what you like to make and what people are willing to pay for and how to build um, a business where you can really command your own, um, your income, your hours. Uh, a lot of creative people just never make that. They never finish that, that process where they shift from it being a hobby to being a full-time income or they don't really want to. They feel threatened by, you know, the business of it, the business side. So, Maybe that's why I focus on it. I mean, I've been lucky when I was a digital nomad. Um, there were a lot of lean years. I had to figure all this stuff out myself. I was making online galleries for my art like 20 years ago when I was working in HTML and making a website. Um, now it's gotten so much easier and it's really valuable to have this community of other digital nomads because um, like my other community is, is writers, but they don't hang out together. It's a really isolating thing to work on a book. Um, and it's really valuable to have a community. So like Facebook groups are great in the last few years, but there's nothing like the digital nomad community where we migrate and you can like travel around the world and keep meeting the same people. So you can build like a community of friends that aren't bound by any specific location. You just keep moving around. Um, I think that's really cool. So, and I, I like, like, I love the creative, uh, community and the artists and the, and the authors and stuff, but I also really like, the entrepreneur community because digital nomads focus on um, like the core rule of business is make something of value, make something that people actually want and are willing to pay for. Um, for a lot of creative people, that's kind of blasphemy. You don't talk about the market or like making something that other people like because that's the opposite of what people assume is the creative process, um, which I haven't found to be true at all. So my, my main brand is Creative Indie, which was like... Um, the epiphany I had when I was making crap um, art and books, I was making all this stuff that I loved, I was really excited about, I was really passionate about, but other people didn't care. And so I was trying so hard to educate other people about why they should like my stuff, and they just didn't like my stuff. So I realized if you just figure out what your audience is and what they actually like and what they respond to, and you make things that they appreciate doesn't mean you're less creative or you have less passion. It's just so much easier. Um, and I think more worthwhile. I think if you're going to be like, I think all real art, um, does provide value. All art elicits, um, an instinctual response from people. And if your art doesn't do that, if people aren't responding to your art, you need to make something else. Um, it's not something you can fix with marketing or business. So my platform, Creative India is really focused on it's kind of like teaching creative people how to be successful with business. But I think the main thing is um, creative people, they think they need marketing. They think they need more visibility. And that's not really the, the main thing. The main thing is figuring out what you can do with your skills to make things that other people appreciate. And the, the more immediate and obvious you can make those benefits. So you don't have to explain your art or tell people what it means or why it's valuable. Um, you can build that stuff into the product. So when they see the product, your book or your, your paintings or whatever, they know the value. They see the value. So um, I'm still learning how to do that better with my own stuff, but um, I have been successful enough at it that I, I love to talk about it. I love the business side of it. So that's kind of what I, what I talk about. No, it's really cool. I know that you have like Gorilla Publishing was one of your books that you published, which helps people understand the publishing process, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. And and that gets a huge response. I mean, you're selling what those books hand over fist online or Yeah, um and girl it's I had a my first book was like book marketing is dead because a lot of it's this weird thing in the publishing industry. It's kind of true with all creative industries, but um in publishing especially, there are millions of people writing books and then they want to publish them and then they want to market them, but they didn't start with Who's going to care about this book? Why does anybody want this book? Um, they just wrote the thing without studying craft or writing or story architecture. Um, so what you have, unfortunately, is a ton of books that don't satisfy readers. They might be like well-written books, but they don't hold readers' attention. They don't satisfy readers. Um, and so the main problem, like I started with um, all these authors, they're trying so hard to market their books, but they have a product nobody wants. And then they screw it up because they have a crappy book cover design. So I, I started off like as a book editor um, when I was getting my master's in literature, and then I shifted towards book cover design because I had a background in fine art. And 
what I found was like the biggest, easiest win I could, I could give people is just to give them a good book cover because then at least people will read the description. If you don't have a good book cover, people won't even know what your book is about because they won't ever click on the book. They won't like read the, they won't turn it over. They won't ever read the description. Um, so you would have to like be in the room telling people why your book is, is valuable and you'll never have that opportunity if you're selling books online or in bookstores or whatever. Um, so first it was just, and still authors are just, there's millions of authors. Um, they're not selling. They're putting all this money in their books and they're dissatisfied. So they, they do a lot of spammy, you know, they go on social media and they just blast their book promotion or deal all the time, which doesn't work. Um, so my first book, book marketing was dead was just like, don't do that stuff. Focus on creating a good product that has immediate, um, obvious value. And then, you, you know, with a good cover, with a good description, you don't really need to do very much marketing. Um, but then I've been realizing more and more, even if you get everything else right and you have a great cover and you have a great author platform, um, it really all comes back to the book. It's, it's having a really good, satisfying book. So I, I quit editing uh, a long time ago, but I'm kind of getting back into it. Um, my new course with Guerrilla Publishing, like it's all about building an author platform, creating good products. But I realized authors really need more help just with writing a good book. So I had a new course come out, um, the bestseller blueprint, which is like, basically I, I plotted out like a 26 chapter outline for all commercial fiction, um, which I'd been wanting to do for a while. And I, I, there was all these other chapter outlines online and none of them were, none of them really worked. They're all kind of loosely based on Joseph Campbell's, um, hero's journey or like a three art, three act, um, play, which is you know, story architecture that goes back 3,000 years um, and works to some extent, but there wasn't like a chapter-by-chapter chapter outline that, that I thought was satisfying. So I made my own, which I think is pretty good. Um, I've been using it. I'm still writing fiction. And now, like, even when I get stuck with my own fiction, I'll go back to the outline I made and see, like, you know, okay, I'm in chapter six. What should be happening here? Um, and I found that really helped a lot. So helping authors, you know, just to... They can still be creative. They can still tell their own story, but just to give them like a little bit of a framework, a little bit of um, signposts, just to let them know they're going in the right direction and put the right things in the right place. Um, I also have some stuff for nonfiction books because, you know, there's also kind of a way to do nonfiction books the right way, which satisfies readers, uh, which is really interesting. Actually, I'm, I'm redoing all my nonfiction because I always focused on providing information. I was always just like information that's enough. I don't want to like hold people's hands or I don't want to, I didn't, I never considered myself as like an inspirational guy. I'm kind of a nuts and bolts guy. Um, so I didn't want to like give them motivation or positive thinking or like you can do it because I figured if you're creative, if you're passionate, you just need to know how to do it, but you're going to have to find the passion on your own. Um, I've been realizing more and more that's not actually the case. Even if you know what to do, you still need the motivation. You still need someone telling you, you know, you can do it. You still need, um, kind of like checks and balances. Um, authors have like, even if they know the story they want to tell, even if they have a framework for it, they still need, um, accountability and motivation. And so this is some other stuff that I also need. So I've kind of been trying to build, um, communities or anything I can do to kind of support them long term. Um, I thought about even like making a chat bot, like a Facebook chat bot just to check in with them every day and being like, how many words? How's your novel going? How's your book going? Um, whatever I can do to support them. So yeah, some of the things I'm working on. I mean, your wheels sound like they're always spinning. Like they're just, you're coming from so many angles. You've obviously really, you've really, or you've worked on your craft, you know, over the years, not just creatively, but business wise. Um, speaking about your, your fiction books, I know you focus on the sci-fi side of things and you talked about earlier authors just writing something because they feel compelled to write it because they like it mm -hmm. and they don't really address what readers want to read within the sci-fi realm of things like how do you find out what people really want to read yeah so with um with books and publishing it's just like researching any business you, you do keyword research there's a lot of great tools for publishing um you can look on amazon and see what's selling i read a lot of young adult books i try to read a lot of um traditionally published and self-published novels because they're different they're different audiences that you sell and promote them differently some are like you know some sell online on amazon some sell in bookstores so like the book design is different even um and i want to be somewhere in the middle so i want to have like really good books 
that also sell well on Amazon. So I need to be doing, you know, a balance of both. But there's also like, if you're going to be self-publishing, you, you can write a different kind of book. Um, one of the interesting things, for example, traditional publishers, they won't take on vampire books because they think vampire books are dead since Twilight. They think there's no market for vampire books, but there's an enormous market of a hundred million readers who love vampire books. They just can't get enough. So it's kind of interesting because traditional publishers won't publish those books. There's a huge market. So the indie authors are the ones filling the demand by writing, you know, the books that the readers actually want. Traditional publishers, they try to predict the market. They try to predict what readers might like next. And they're always trying to, to guess, but that's a much riskier business because they don't really know, which is why traditional publishing, most of the books lose money. Most of the books don't earn out their advance. Most authors, even if they're famous, traditionally published authors, um, they're probably not making a full-time living with their books. And I have indie author friends who publish on Amazon who are making a crazy amount of money. I mean, it's not, it's not easy, um, and it's uncommon. Like I said, most authors just aren't making any money. But the ones who have deliberately learned how to self-publish well, and they've taken control of their business, they've figured out Amazon ads and Facebook ads, um, it's easier, like, it's easier to make a full-time income with writing to go self-publishing or to go indie, um, which is really exciting for me because I know I can build up my backlist of novels and I can make a significant amount of money. Um, and I mean like 10,000 a month or 20,000 a month. So not just like making a living, but making a lot more money than I could at any normal job, um, which I think is really exciting. And the nice thing about, about writing is that you're creating like every book you finish is a new, um, asset. It's a new passive income asset. So when you write 10 or 20 books, yeah, it'll take years, but then you have all of this content. You can just keep selling. Um, you can build up your, your platform or whatever. Um, anyway, so that's really exciting for me. I've only got, you know, six novels out or so. Um, but I've made quite a bit of money with it already. I know I can make a lot more, um, when I, you know, I'm still learning how to write faster, how to write better, but I know that I will be successful because I've already kind of proven the model by publishing enough fiction that I know readers like it. I've been building up my own platform. Um, so I have my own list of, of fans who like my fiction, um, and I approach it as a business. So like I'm doing things that even though in my circles, um, it seems like everybody's making money with Kindle publishing. I know that actually there's not like the ma vast majority of, of authors, they still are trying to go traditional. They still are resistant to building an email list or setting up an author website. They just aren't doing all the things that they could be doing. Um, so if you're willing to do the business stuff and learn how to sell your books, it's, it's a really cool business because you, you can just, you know, wake up and write stuff and not deal with clients, not really deal with the, the marketing. Um, a lot of it, like the people who do really well, they, they usually figure out Facebook ads or Amazon ads. Um, and the, the way that that kind of works is with fiction, you can set up a series. So if you write a three or four book series and you turn it into a box set that you sell at $9.99, you can spend more on advertisements than anybody else who has a single title. So that's, that's kind of the way to make it work. Um, you just finish series and box set, which I haven't done yet. So I haven't really focused on, you know, scaling up or advertising as much as I'd like to, but I know that that's kind of the way to do it. Um, so that's kind of where I'm headed. That's cool, man. When it comes to say finding out that your audience is really into say the vampire trend you just talked about, but you hate vampires, are you going to write a book about vampires for him? Yeah, I did. Um, and I was actually, for years, for probably five years, I'm like, you know, just write a book about vampires. That's the way to make money. And I did it. I started off with like mermaids and time travel and a lot of other things, which they still sell okay. There's less demand, but because there's, there's less competition, my books stand out. They get found. Um, I was kind of like on the early wave of mermaid stuff. And now there's a lot of new mermaid fiction and movies and TV stuff that's come out in 2018. Um, but I only have that one book. It's like one big, long novel. So I'm going to try to finish up book two. Um, I kind of started with like what I'm interested in. I love mythology and um, historical places. So my wife and I travel full time. I love to go and like stay in a place that I'm going to research. Um, that's not really necessary. Some, the books that sell the best are they don't actually, they're not actually in a real place with real history. It's kind of just made up stuff. Um, so I don't have to do that kind of research for my books. And I, now vampires are like 
my vampire novel still sells. Like I expect it to sell well, and it does. It sells really well. It's actually a vampire dystopia, so it's a little more sci-fi. It's a little different from like a classic um, vampire story, but I got to do some fun things with it. Um, people like it a lot, so it sells really well. And when I have like a series done, so like I'm happy with my book. I think it's good, but I started writing this book and I started like, I wrote the first 20,000 words. I think and I gave it away as a, a teaser or a freebie to build my list. Um, so I had it out there for a while and then I didn't finish the novel. And in the meantime, I have author friends who have finished a whole series, like a very similar series, which is a little annoying. So a vampire dystopia, um, vampire royalty is really big. So it's like a queen, a prince, um, castles because epic fantasy is really big in, in 2018. So, um, I'm a little annoyed that like I still only have book one and there's two or three other series who already have a whole book series out that's so similar in concept to mine. Um, so I basically, I just need to catch up because they, of course, they can spend a lot more on ads. Their books are selling like crazy. They're making a ton of money and I have the same kind of book. So I know I wrote the right kind of book. Um, and the nice thing is like when something becomes popular, I was like, I got in at the right time. I knew that this was going to be the next big thing. So I wrote this kind of book. Um, but I also kind of like, I, I showed my cards. Like I showed everybody, you know, while Derek is doing this, this, this is the next big thing. So a bunch of other authors who were faster than me, they finished out a whole book series. Um, and now readers are, readers are becoming familiar with this new genre. So this vampire dystopia royalty thing, it's not a new thing anymore. Um, which is good. Like just with entrepreneurism, you don't want to be the only thing. You want to be in a, um, a, a new market. Um, because readers, they don't know what they're looking for. Now that they know that vampire royalty is a thing, vampire royalty dystopia, they'll be searching for those things. They'll be on Amazon or on Google, like best vampire royalty dystopia with dragons or whatever. Um, because now they've read a couple of those and they're looking for more. So it's good to be like, I have the right kind of product for that market. And it's good to be early on um, because when the demand starts getting really big, you know, you want to be there. So you kind of have to keep um, your eye on the trends and you do have to write faster, but trends last a year or two. So it's not really like you have to crank out a book a month. Um, I have friends who do that. I'm not that fast yet. I can finish a, a novel in like three or four months. Um, so I've, I've written like four books this year, which is super fast compared to traditional publishing, which is one book a year, you know, four novels a year is, is impressive. But I, I have friends, if this is my only job and I'm doing it full time, um, actually you can write, um, you can basically write a thousand words in an hour pretty easily. You can do 500 words in like a 20 minute sprint. Um, so with a little bit of practice, um, it's not difficult to do a thousand words an hour. So if you do two hours a day, it's 2000 words. You should be finishing 60,000 words in a month, which is long enough for like a regular size novel. Um, and that's, that's feasible as long as you know what you're doing. That's why I love like plotting and story architecture. Cause if you know what you're writing, you won't get stuck, um, in the process and you really can just write a book a month. I, I'm not there yet, even though I know I can write that fast. Um, I think I wrote like 6,000 words in the last 24 hours. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm right now I'm like on a writing deadline. So I know it's possible, but I'm not keeping it consistent. Um, like I would like to be able to. So I'm just, I'm kind of developing that skill set. I do think it's a learnable skill. I do think I can get better at it. Um, I don't think I have to publish a novel in a month to be competitive. I know people who just publish, you know, a series a year. So like three novels a year, but they have one good series that just sells really, really well to make a lot of money. So that's, that's possible as well. Um, anyway, it's, it's a, it's a really neat field to be in. Um, and there is a lot of demand, but, well, there's a lot of demand and there's not that many people who are deliberately writing books to satisfy the hungry, hungry market. So the people who try to do it, even if their writing isn't actually that great, if they get the covers right and the blurbs right and readers are looking for what they have, they're going to sell a lot of books. I'm interested to learn about this subculture you just kind of alluded to. I mean, how many people are in these, these groups of people that you kind of reference, you know, like your competitors and the people who are a little faster than you and you're kind of like, are you like in the distance and you don't really know the person you never met him? And you're like, Oh, fuck you. Or is it like your buddy that you communicate with on Skype? who's like, you're constantly bouncing ideas off of like, how big is this culture of people? And like, how interwoven are you all? The nice like, thing is, um, the self-published community is a pretty small community, even though, 
um, something like 90% of everybody wants to write a book and most books can't get a publishing deal. So there's kind of two aspects. On the one hand, there's all the writers who don't know anything. They just want to write a book or finish a book. So they're still going to like writers conferences. They're talking to agents. They're trying to learn how to get a deal, um, which is slow because they'll probably spend a couple years writing the book and then a couple more years going to conferences and learning and pitching to agents um, unsuccessfully. And some people hold out and eventually they get a book deal. But like I said, even if they do, they're probably not going to make a lot of money that way. But that's kind of what most people start off wanting. Um, and then eventually they, they give up. I'm, I'm doing air quotes, even though you can't see me. Um, they give up and decide to sell publishing. But that's also when like they realize you can make real money with writing um, if you self-publish. There are people, like there are traditional published authors, um, Victoria Schwab just got like a million dollar deal for her trilogy, but that's the exception. Most traditionally published authors, like 90% of traditionally published authors, um, they get a smaller deal of like ten or $20,000 for an advance. Um, a typical first-time author might get ten or $20,000, and that's that's all right. It's it's nice to go with the traditional publisher, but um, they they generally like... The other problem with going traditional is that they don't need to figure out marketing. They don't need to build a website or build their email list because they just figure the, the publisher is going to do all that stuff. And really, they don't. So they're not going to sell that many books. Um, what usually happens is eventually they go traditional. They don't make any money. The, the, because they didn't make any money, they get dropped by the traditional publisher. And then finally, they get their rights back and they decide to figure out indie publishing. <clears throat> so the nice thing about self-publishing is everybody's trying to figure it all out. Um, so they share their secrets. They're really welcome. There's a lot of like big bloggers who have built um, a big community by just talking openly about self-publishing um, and the business. And unfortunately, there's there's a, it's a billion dollar industry, but most of the money is going to vanity presses or self-publishing services who are selling um, bullshit basically to new authors who don't know anything. So they're paying way too much to get a publishing package or a deal or for like a coach. Um, who's charging ten or twenty thousand dollars to help them write their book, which you know could be valuable if they're writing the right kind of book to make. Especially if they're like if they're writing a nonfiction book and they're going to use it for their business, um, that's all right. You could make your money back, but most fiction is not going to make that much money. Um, so to spend you know ten grand on a publishing package when your book's probably not going to make that money, that it's not a it's not necessarily a scam, but you can figure out how to self-publish much cheaper. Um, you hire a cover designer directly and get a good editor. So there's there are communities now, especially just in the last couple of years, there are Facebook groups um, where it's a lot easier to network with these other authors. So what I'll usually do is I'll see authors who are selling really well and I'll just find them on Amazon and Twitter and follow them. I might send them a message and be like, hey, I really like your covers and just start a dialogue that way. And then I'll start to see them in other groups. Um, it's really cool. There, I used to be a cover designer. Now there's a lot of new cover designers who have a whole Facebook business. They just have a Facebook group where they're selling pre-made cover designs. So I will be in there competing with all of my peers and we're bidding on the same covers because we know if you get a good cover, you know, your book is basically done. It writes itself. Um, you, I personally write stories to go with the covers, um, which I think a lot of other people are doing now also. Um, because, you know, if I, if I see an amazing cover and I know that's going to sell, I'll just write a book for that. That'll be my, my inspiration, my starting point. But, um, yeah, I have like, you know, 10 or 20 other people who I also know write vampire romance dystopia who are looking for the same kinds of things and will be competing against the same book cover. So I might like see a cover that got away up on Amazon and I know who the author is. I know who the cover designer is. Um, and I can kind of watch them be successful. So I think that's really cool. Um, and yeah, I am kind of like friends with the cover designers and the other authors. They're my competitors, but that's also the kind of cool thing with publishing is, um, readers, they won't buy one book. They'll buy, if they, if they like that my competitor's vampire dystopian romance, that's awesome because I can target her book with my Amazon ads. I can target, you know, for fans of that author for that book. Um, and that's a cool thing about Amazon ads is if her book is doing great, that's good for me. I can just have my book show up underneath her book on her Amazon page. You can't really do that in any other market where, um, you know, if her, even something simple like if she does a big promotion and she's suddenly at the top of the Amazon store and she's in the top 100 of all the categories, um, 
that's great for her, but I can pay to advertise my book and have my book show up right under hers on her book page. That's a really cool opportunity. So um, things like that, little hacks, it's, it's like it would normally be really gray hat or black hat marketing, but it's not as like weird or slimy because we're Facebook friends. Like everybody's marketing anyway. Um, Amazon actively promotes um, Amazon ads. So it's not like, it's not like I'm breaking any rules for, for me to do that. Um, it's just good marketing. Um, anyway, so that's kind of cool where yeah, it sounds like a really interesting community of people that aren't, aren't trying to fuck each other over, you know, they're kind of all in it together to a certain extent, but I mean, they're supportive too. There are some, there are some other people. Um, and this is also kind of weird cause I'm in the entrepreneur circles. Um, I know people who are, who don't write the books themselves. They outsource the books. Um, and they, they're allowed to have, because they outsource the books and they have kind of a publishing company, they can produce a lot more, more books. So they have a bigger backlist and they can outbid everybody, which I think is a smart strategy. As long as readers are happy, I think that's totally fine. Um, but there are some other tricks people have used because part of Amazon's ecosystem is, um, Kindle Unlimited, which you get paid by the, by the page read. So, Basically, people pay $10 a month or something to, to check out a certain number of books. And if they check out your book, you'll get paid um, by how many pages they read. And this was done because originally you would just get like paid for every borrow. So people would just publish really short, crappy books, um, but they would get the same amount of money. So Amazon changed it so that you only get paid by the, the length of people actually reading through your book. <clears throat> but then people started hacking that by, they would do things like they would um, package 10 books together to make a really long book, or they would put a link in the back to get you to click from the back to the, from the front to the back. So you kind of have read the whole book um, and you would get credit, which is, which is bullshit, but it worked for a long time. Um, and Amazon has had st- trouble. Even now, um, Amazon still, like if you look at the top 100 on the Amazon, there's still a lot of people who are still manipulating the system um, and they're earning a lot more than they should be and part of the problem is like on the one hand some of them are just outright scammers they have bad books on the other hand some of them are writing you know romance or erotica and the readers are happy with these books the readers are okay with it they like the author so even though the author is doing some really weird like really sketchy shit their readers are happy <clears throat> but it's kind of not fair for like everybody else, because technically these are, this is against the rules. And Amazon has kept updating the rules to try to get rid of that kind of behavior. Um, so like, uh, on the one hand, there's like the, the authors with integrity, and then there's like the scammers who are, who are cheating. Um, but part of the problem is Amazon, you know, just has robots to fix everything. So they, if, if there's enough of an uproar because they made some change, um, Amazon will put in some new code and then the robots will punish or flag any account that does anything that, that looks sketchy. So if, for example, you get a BookBub deal or you have a new release and you have a big email list and you suddenly spike your Amazon rank because you know what you're doing, it can look like you're manipulating the system. Um, and they actually have a rule where you can't do anything to manipulate the sales rank, um, which is actually what every author is trying to do. Of course, you want, like, the whole strategy for, for authors to launch a book um, is to sell a bunch of books the first week so that your rank goes up and you become a number one bestseller in your category. That's just that's just book marketing. Um, but Amazon, like, doesn't really want you to do that. They want just, like, long-term evergreen organic sales, um, which is fine, except if you're an author, of course you want to do whatever you can to, to show up. And there's millions of other books you're competing against. So it's always kind of like a battle with what Amazon wants. Um, Amazon has always been reader focused. They don't really care about the authors because they, they want to keep their purchasers happy. That's the most important thing. Um, so little things like they delete a lot of reviews because they don't want any of your friends or family to have reviewed your book. So if you're an author building an email list or a fan base, um, that's what you should be doing. But if Amazon sees any interaction between you and your fans, then they'll delete those reviews. So Amazon deletes a lot of reviews, um, which is frustrating, of course, but they do it because they, they want to make sure all of the reviews are 
honest and authentic because they want to keep their buyers happy. That's the most important thing. Um, anyway, so there's this balance between like the real authors and the fake authors and Amazon sometimes gets overzealous and they will like ban, you know, real authors, legitimate authors who haven't really done anything wrong, but their books will just disappear. Um, there's always huge changes this week. Um, a lot of Amazon's core ish, like core, um, features like the also bought section, which has been, um, for the last year or so, there's an also bought section, which kind of promotes, you know, organic sales, your books, books, this books by this author, this book, uh, readers who have bought this book have also bought this other book. And there's a row of other books the authors have bought. So if you sell a lot of books to a right readership, um, that's good. That's kind of why like you don't want to promote your book to your friends and family because they're not your real readers. And if a bunch of your friends and family buy your book, it's going to screw up your also bots, which will screw up your organic visibility on, on Amazon. So you want to be really targeted with who actually buys your book. Um, but this week, the also bought section kind of disappeared and there were two rows of sponsored ads, which means like the only way to get your book seen at all is with advertising. Um, so that's kind of a big issue. And then also a lot of books just completely disappeared because um, I think a lot of international readers were buying books on a different market. So like, I think, for example, Ireland, which doesn't have its own Amazon store, would buy books from the the U.S. store just because that was the way that they could do it. Um, or I think possibly Australia as well. Um, so what has happened this week is that you suddenly can't see your Kindle book in another store. So if I'm in the U.S. and I go to the U.K. or Australia or some other international store and I search for my book, it just it will show up with no results. It just does, it's not found. It's in, invisible. Um, so a lot of authors are freaking out about that because their books are just gone and they don't know what happened. Um, I don't know if that's going to be fixed. These are sometimes it's just a, a a glitch or a tweak. Sometimes Amazon is just testing out so many different things. Um, but you know, for people who make a full time living with Amazon, when they make one change, you know, if you make twenty thousand dollars a month and it goes down to like three thousand a month because Amazon made a change, that's that's a big deal. So of course you're you're sensitive to those things. Um, anyway, so that's the business. I do think it's fascinating. Um. I do think, you know, authors need to be flexible. They need to build up their own platform, their own email list, their own traffic to their own website. That's always what I've been focused on doing, um, which I, I think is really important because, you know, if Amazon does change or shut down or whatever, I want to know that I can still move my platform somewhere else. 100%. Do you think, I mean, for the future, what's it going to be like Kindle or printed word? Like, are we going to see books go completely out the window and everything will be on Kindle? Um, I think there will always be books. <clears throat> and readers, if you ask readers what they prefer, readers always say they prefer books, especially for young adult, what I, what I sell. Um, if you ask them, they'll say, yeah, I prefer a $20 nice printed hardback from the, from the bookstore. But the truth is they might buy one of those a month and they might buy 50 ebooks a month at, you know, 99 cents or 299 because they're cheap and because most readers read fast. Um, so there's always opportunity for free books and they're just more convenient. Like even I travel full time. So I'll have like two or 300 books on my Kindle and I'll travel with one or two actual hard copy books. Um, so it's kind of like the dream. Everybody likes the print covers. It's just ebooks are so much more convenient. Um, and what's actually the biggest growth right now has been audiobooks. Audiobooks are up like 30% a year the last couple of years. They're, they're growing a lot faster than ebooks. Ebooks were like a huge thing and then there was some indication that um, ebook sales have gone down this year and print is back in demand, but that's kind of misleading because a lot of those studies only look at traditionally published books, so they don't really take into account, you know, the fact that indie ebooks are outselling traditionally published ebooks now. Um, anyway, so there's, I think, audiobook is the is the, the next biggest kind of step for growth, which is kind of interesting to see. Watch both fiction and nonfiction um, are selling really well. So that's kind of like something I definitely need to move into. Um, but that's interesting. A lot of people are like, they're preferring to read books by audio because then they can like read books. I'm doing the air quotes again, but they can read books while they're exercising or while they're walking or while they're, you know, getting in their 2000 steps a day or whatever. So, um, and that's actually really cool. That just means, you know, people can read more books without stopping to do other things because everybody's busy. Um, and of course, you know, if I don't, 
necessarily want them to only read my book. If they can read my book while they're doing something else, I think that's really cool. Totally. Let's talk about full-time travel now for a minute. Okay. You've been tra full-time traveling as a digital nomad for four years, but you've been living outside of Oregon for, what, you said 20 years? Yeah. Um, I was an exchange student to Argentina when I was 16, and then I did my, my bachelor's in Malta um, in the Mediterranean. I studied fine art in Italy for a while. Um, and this was way before there was a digital nomad or a four-hour work week or whatever. Um, I just really liked living abroad. I liked learning languages. Um, this was like... 2002 or so. I think I graduated, graduated in Malta like 2001. Um, with a PhD? With a bachelor's. Okay. And then 2003, I went to Taiwan. I stayed there for like 10 years. Um, I was an English teacher. I met my wife, and then I found out there's a government scholarship program because they're trying to attract like foreign English speakers or international students to Taiwan universities so that Taiwan students have, you know, um, familiarity because there's not enough jobs for Taiwanese people, so they kind of wanted Taiwanese students to get comfortable talking with foreigners. I think that was kind of the main reason. Um, so I got, you know, kind of paid to go to school for a lot of years, so I could just write books. Well, I was doing fine art mostly, so I was focusing on painting. Um, I would still, like, teach a couple hours of English and study a couple hours a week. I didn't really work that hard as a student, um, but I got paid to go to school, so that meant I could really focus on learning business, learning online stuff, building platforms. Um, I eventually switched from fine art completely. I got into graphic design and editing. Um, I built up online businesses. So by the time like, I finally finished my PhD, which I almost didn't, I mean, I was already making good money you know, well before I finished my PhD. But um, when I finally finished, we were kind of like, there's a, you can be a digital nomad and live somewhere cheap. That's different from being location independent, where you make enough money that you can really live anywhere. You can travel you know, full time, you can live in, in Europe, you can, we went back and lived in Portland for three months, um, which is a pretty expensive city. So there's, it's a kind of different lifestyle to have that kind of a freedom and also to be making enough money to really enjoy the freedom. Um, we just travel full time to go to like conferences so I can see other writers or digital nomads. Cause like I said, the community is so important and that's kind of what we do. We'll just, we'll find a conference we want to go to and we'll just go and stay in that country for a month. Um, and because we know there'll be other people around. Um, we've been doing that for a while, so we're kind of looking for somewhere we can stay a little bit longer. Um, and it would definitely be nice to like, to not spend so much. I've been, I've been fortunate that I'm making enough money that I can, um, travel full time, but I've also been really trying to focus on quitting client work and building all these other assets and, and courses and stuff so I can really just focus on my own, um, writing. That would be a lot easier if I just, like we're in Chiang Mai right now. It, this is the, the cheapest we've paid in rent for years. So if I just like stayed here for three or four months, um, I could finish all these book projects I've been talking about for years. I could fix a lot of the stuff that I, the projects that I haven't finished. Um, so that's probably what we'll do hopefully in the next couple of years is just fix some stuff. Um, and then I'll be at the point where I can really just focus on writing books full time. I won't really have to worry about uh, income or marketing or anything. That's so rad. I'm inspired. This, mm -hmm. is, this is my goal as well. What um, does your wife do? Um, she does more handicraft. She doesn't really like computers. She doesn't like marketing or sales. So she's she's very crafty and creative, but she likes um, needlepoint, crochet, things like that. So it's kind of hard for her because if we travel, she can't bring like her loom, her her whole set. In Taiwan, we had a um, we had an apartment, and she had like a whole room to herself filled with yarn, basically, just tons and tons of yarn. Um, and because we travel, she had to give all that up, which kind of sucks. Um, and she can't really do all the projects she would like to do. So that's a little frustrating for her, I think. Um, I would, you know, love it if she got into online business or sold stuff on Etsy, but she's just not really interested um, in that kind of stuff. So that's fine. I love, I love business and I love um, kind of ambition, I guess, like the drive to want to improve yourself or your, your situations to learn, to grow. Um, and she has that to the point where she likes to develop her skills. So she's always going through like a, a book on needlepoint and she's learning a new stitch or a new, like her skills are, are insane. She's really good at her craft because she's studying. Um, but she doesn't really see, I think an end goal. Like she's not doing it <clears throat> to build a business or to like sell something. She's just doing it because she wants um, to be the, not even to be the best because she's not competitive. She's, it's just like, I don't know, the personal um, satisfaction in your craft, I guess, which is admirable. Um, 
but for me, because I'm really results oriented, I'm always like, you know, but what are you going to do with it? What are you going to, what are you going to sell? And it, I don't know. It's, it's kind of nice. Probably, I think, um, the reason I think we probably work so well together is that she's not as ambitious as I am. I think it might be really hard with two digital nomads or two entrepreneurs where you're both so focused on your business all the time. You're so focused on your, you know, your own projects, your own passions, your goals. Um, I can understand why, like for a digital nomad, it might be really hard to find a life partner if you both are so driven. Um, I don't know. It's a, I mean, that's a whole different thing with relationships. Um, and there's, an, I know Nathan's book talks a little bit. His book's about digital nomadism, um, and the culture. And I do think like the culture of finding a life partner when you travel full time, um, when your whole mindset and ideology is so foreign to what anybody else experiences, like any normal person in any culture where you just stay in one place and have a job and have a house, it's so foreign to what we are used to and experience. Um, anyway, I think it, it can be, it makes sense to like, you have to find someone who's comfortable with your mindset or your, your experiences, because what we do is so different. Um, and but on spending, the other hand, and spending 24 hours together, I mean, like as digital, oh, yeah. it's like you're together 24 seven where the traditional way of doing it is like, goodbye, honey, kiss in the morning, go to work, come back. How was your day? And you spend that, you know, eight hours apart or whatever it may be. And that can be healthy for relationships too. Yeah. Like as a digital nomad, you are moving together, living together, eating together 24 seven, you know, and like you just, you sound out. like you've experienced this Oh yeah. before. Yeah. yeah that actually, that's a really good um, point because even though like my wife and I were great, we get along really well, but definitely that's true. Like I'm home all the time. So like, and we always try to rent a big apartment. So like at least our computer, the desk is like not right next to the bed. At least we have two rooms. Um, but even so, you know, I'm, I'm up really late. I'm working on my stuff. Sometimes our schedules, like our normal schedule is we sleep all day and we wake up at like four or 5 PM. It's not great or healthy, but that, that's just kind of what we do. Um, ideally we sleep until 11 AM or noon and we get up, but Usually it just keeps cre creeping back later and later until it's like 5 p.m. or something. Um, what time do you go to sleep then? Like I, 5 in the morning, but then like three hours of Netflix, and then it's like light outside. So so you just, that's when you're most creative at night. Like that's when you find you, you're just... Yeah, I um, probably. Like I think it's just when I set an alarm and I make myself wake up, then I'll feel... Like I could do normal, boring work, but I can't do creative work. So if I want to be really at my creative best, um, I need to just sleep as long as I need to sleep. And I wake up naturally whenever I'm not tired anymore. And if I do that, it doesn't matter what time of the day it is, but then I'll be at my sharpest. Um, if I set an alarm and I like have to get up at any time, then I'll be off like all day and I just can't really do good work. So, so how'd you get to the retreat? We had to be Yeah, it was fun. hard. <laughs> it was. And I, but I wasn't doing creative work. I was doing like fixing my funnels, fixing like, there's a lot of stuff I need to fix that I've just been avoiding. Um, so like that stuff I need to do anyway. Um, but if I want to be doing like writing or like high level creative stuff, thinking at my clearest, um, and you know, I, I could get used to waking up early. It just, it takes me a while and I'd just be kind of thrown off. What, uh, what, what was your PhD in actually? Literature. Literature. Okay. Um, and then the art that you did prior to transitioning, like was painting, it sounds like? Painting, oil painting, surrealist stuff. Can um, we see some of it? Is there a place that the audience could go and take a look? <laughs> yeah. It's super weird. Your, your audience would probably like it. Um, I don't really talk about it anymore because my audience now for publishing is really diverse and not everybody shares my background or my ideology. So it's really like, um, tongue in cheek satire or humor, kind of like weird religious or irreligious iconography, um, very satirical or blasphemous. So I don't even like, I don't talk about it because I know some of my like current audience might be really offended. Oh, yeah. um, it's still up online. If you search for like Derek Murphy art, you'll find it. Um, and I'm not super proud of it. It was, they're, they're kind of cool. They're kind of funny. I thought they were fun. But they're definitely pretty weird and twisted, so. I can't wait. I'm looking at Not it. everybody likes them. How many languages do you speak, dude? Um, I was pretty good at Spanish because I lived in Argentina for a year 
when I was younger. I think it's really important to learn languages when you're younger. Um, I was, I learned a little bit of German, and then when I was in Taiwan, I studied hard for the first few years, and I got like intermediate Chinese, pretty good Mandarin Chinese. But for the amount of time I stayed there, because after the first couple of years, I didn't have a job, I didn't have to go to go anywhere. Um, my only like when you stay home, you work online. Everything you do is in English. I went to school. Most of my classes were in English. I taught English. Everything was in English. So, like, even though I was in the country and like it was, it wasn't an immersive experience. So, even though I'm married to someone who speaks Chinese as a native language, my wife spe- speaks um, Mandarin Chinese and Taiwanese, which is her first language, and it's kind of a older dialect. Um, and English, I'm assuming. And English. Um, but her, like her English, her English is probably better than my Chinese at this, this point. But, um, we're both probably not fluent in each other's languages. Um, which is kind of interesting because we've been together like 15 years and we're still, I'll hear her use a word like a high level, like a, um, I forget what you call it, but in, in like Scrabble, there's like a, a 10 point word or a 20 point word. And I'll hear her use like a really high level word for the first time and I'll be like, wow. That's really good. Where'd you learn that? That's so interesting. Yeah, because I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about not being able to really describe their feelings fully because they don't have the grasp of the language. So in situations where you both have to really communicate your feelings, how does that work? Is there ever frustration on either one's part because they're not understanding where you're really coming from? Yeah, we get frustrated a lot. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding because our personalities are so different. Um, I'm a really laid back, casual, dirty guy. I just, I leave shit all over. She's very organized. Um, and we're, we're both, I think, analytical. We're both kind of smart in, in the, like, we look at patterns probably. Um, so there's reasons that, that we get along so well, but she's definitely hyper organized and I'm the opposite. Um, so there are times where like, I do something wrong, but I don't, I don't know why it's wrong. I don't know why the thing I'm doing matters because I don't see any point. And for her, there's always a reason. Like it matters because of this other thing, this other whole other process. So she has a reason for everything, but she doesn't communicate those reasons to me. She just tells me not to do it. So I won't know. Like if I don't know the reason not to do something, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to follow some rule, some arbitrary rule that doesn't, you know, I need to know why it matters. If I understand the, the process or the rationale behind it, then I can remember it. But if it's just an, some arbitrary rule, I won't remember it. And I'll just keep doing it, you know, over and over again. She'll get frustrated because she's told me a thousand times. Um, so little things like that. And then, you know, eventually if she communicates the whole reason of why it actually matters to her, then I'll finally get it. Um, but a lot, a lot of little things like that that take us, you know, a long time before I kind of figure out what's going on. I think you just spoke for many men listening <laughs> to this podcast right now. Um, wow, Derek, this has been so eye-opening just to the, the culture in which you live in and operate in. I mean, thank you for being so articulate in the way you described everything because I didn't know half the stuff you talked about, and I'm tremendously interested in learning more. Um, but, you know, you got Gorilla Publishing. Is Your website is what? Creative Indie slash GP? Um, Creative Indie is my main website. Okay. It's not really my business. Like, I don't... I don't sell stuff on that website very well. I'd like to like redo it all because I might as well, if I get the traffic, you know, I want to be, I want to have something of value for the people who visit my site. And I want to be, you know, be able to sell something to those people because I think, you know, the free material is just not enough. You should be offering the people who need help, the help they need. Um, but like right now it's kind of defocused because it's just creativity in general. And almost everybody who visits the website is actually probably interested in book marketing or book design or, or publishing. Um, so on that side, I just talk about like whatever. It's a really just personal random site. I have other sites that make the money um, that are more focused on book design mostly. Um, but on that site, like if you, if you Google book marketing is dead or guerrilla publishing um, on creativity slash GP, I have a free copy of the guerrilla publishing book which is kind of just like a crash course in publishing, um, in publishing profitably, which is a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of interesting. I have so much, like I have mountains of free content, so it kind of overwhelms people. Um, and then on YouTube, I I think if you just search YouTube for Creative Indie, that's the same brand. Um, I'm up to like 
a million and a half YouTube views, mostly on like book design and stuff, um, which is kind of fun. I don't, all my platforms, like I'm not, I'm not using them well. I have a ton of free content, so I get traffic, but I'm not really branding myself well. I'm not really building the, the trust of the credibility or like, you know, leading them towards, leading them through a funnel, um, which I need to be doing because if I just have all this random stuff, they just don't know what to do next. And I'd really like to be helping people in a more organized way. So that's kind of what I'm focused on um, this year and next year is just cleaning up my mountains of content um, and just getting it a little more organized, a little more professional. Cool. Um, if do you still take on clients as of now, or are you, you just, like you said, trying to clean up everything and, and step away from the clients? Yeah, I resist it. Um, but what I have been doing is I have courses and the courses are the way to buy access to me. So it's actually kind of weird because I was charging like three grand, um, for client work. And if I did client work in the future, that's probably going to keep being more expensive. Um, but I kind of actually prefer selling cheaper courses. So my gorilla publishing course is like 500 bucks, but it actually includes like a year of coaching basically and, and some done for you services and help, um, a lot more than like I normally would give clients, but I feel more comfortable with it because it, it's not like if I charge three grand from someone, I'm just working with them one-on-one and I'm really responsible for the results. And the weird thing about um, publishing, like I said, is that most people aren't making any money anyway. So I don't want to take money from people unless I can be sure they're going to earn it back. Whereas with courses, I know that the course is already worth 500 bucks and they're going to learn a ton. And also if I do some, you know, some personal feedback, um, that's a huge value add. Um, my courses are kind of going to keep getting more expensive. Um, and that's kind of like the only way to get direct access to me right now is through the courses. Um, and sometimes I take on like, I, a little bit of cover design work. I've got to find like a way to um, to outsource that or to like figure out a way where I'm not the thing because that's that's the reason I've been switching to passive income models is just because even though you know I'm good at cover design, I can make a lot of money with it. Um, it's just always you're always doing the same thing. I can do ten covers a month um, and make a whole bunch of money, but you know every month is the same. You're always just making new stuff. Um, I don't know. Like I, I should be doing that because. It's a lot of money there. It's not that hard, but I'm really attracted to just the model of teaching everybody how to do it themselves, selling like cheap templates or courses where they can just learn how to do it themselves or use my templates to do it themselves. And then I can just, you know, 100% focus on my own creative projects. Um, People can find these on your website, these, these courses. Yeah. DIY book covers or DIY book templates or creative indie. Um, if you really, Google, like how to design a book cover. I mean, I, my Google rankings aren't as good as they used to be, but I still show up for a lot of stuff. Um, which is nice. Like, so that's like kind top of page one, like on a lot of stuff. My YouTube videos are, are top one for okay. a lot of stuff. I don't even have like thumbnails on a lot of my YouTube videos. So that's something I need to fix because they show up on the top of Google, but they don't get clicked because I don't have a good thumbnail. So little things like that that are so important, um, that I need to fix. But the, the main thing is like, I haven't, been my funnel hasn't been converting to a point I'm happy about mostly because I have all this great free content but I'm not as comfortable with sales as I would like to be um, so that's also what I'm learning is just you know to be able to sell confidently um, I know my my content is so good I'm just really kind of weak on you know you should buy my stuff here's why you should buy my stuff um, so that's a personal personality limitation that I'm um, investing and growing. I've been hiring some help just to like help me fix those problems because I know that's, you know, little tweaks. If I make little tweaks at this point, I could see massive growth. I could, I could double my income, you know, this month just by fixing all the things I'm already doing wrong. Um, so that's also really exciting. Just growing that side of the business by, um, moving beyond. I think like everyone has, you know, what they're comfortable with. And I think moving beyond what you're comfortable with to do what actually works. Um, that's something I think is really important that I have been resisting for a long time. So that's kind of where I am with all those things. Um, but like my passive income is already kind of enough to live on. And like I said, I only, I sell courses. Um, I get enough traffic where I haven't even done advertising. I'm not even doing advertising or, or retargeting all the like basic stuff that works so well. Um, because my, I'm not confident in my basic funnel yet, but you know, within the next few months, if I fix my basic funnel and I focus on retargeting ads and like actually using my traffic and using Facebook ads a little bit better, um, I think I can get my total passive income up to like 10 or 20 K a month, which is amazing. 
Um, so then not only can I just write books full time, but I can really invest. Um, what I really want to do, like, I don't want to just, you know, I get maybe 50,000 new um, visitors with organic traffic, which is all right. Um, and I get 100 leads a day organically with my email list. So that's like three to 5,000 new leads a month, which is great, but um, it's slow. I want to grow my platform really fast, which means knowing how to invest profitably in Facebook ads, which means my like my core funnel has to convert something. I have to sell, sell something enough so that I can invest in Facebook ads profitably and really scale in a way I've never been able to before. So um, like those books on, I want to be, I'm kind of shifting and I want to be the creativity expert, not just like the book marketing and the book marketing, the book cover design guy, but like, you know, the expert in creativity. I love research. I want to do like long form um, creative literary nonfiction books, which are harder to sell without a really big platform. So I'm now that I know kind of how to do all this stuff before I publish those books, because I do want them to do really well. Um, I, I know how to build a platform, but I want to be sure I can invest um, in that platform. So I want to build my email list to like a hundred thousand, not just people, but like actual fans, engaged fans who want my next book. Um, and I know how to do that stuff at that point. So that's all stuff I can do. And my next course on book marketing is going to be like that higher level stuff. Grill publishing is kind of like just how to publish a book profitably. So you're not throwing money away, um, to get up to like a thousand bucks a month, which is conservative, but realistic. Um, and so that's what I help people do. But my next course will be like, you know, how do you, if you want to be a USA Today bestseller, if you want to be a Wall Street Journal bestseller, you have to sell 10,000 copies um, in a week, basically, which means you've got to have a pretty solid platform or you have to be able to build a, a large network of people who will share your book for you. Um, and there's ways to do that as well. So I like I know how to do this stuff, but I haven't really done it for myself, especially not for a nonfiction book. Um, so that's kind of where I am. Now, so like I'm, I'm avoiding the client work because if I take the client work, it's just going to be the same stuff over and over. Um, I'd really like to just like aggressive growth on my own platform so I can do the things that I want to do, like the real passion projects. Um, I tell people like, don't write the book you're in love with. Don't write the passion project because nobody ever, nobody else gives a shit about that book if you don't have an audience. But if you know how to build an audience, of course, you know, write the book you care about. Um, but first maybe write some other books you don't care about so that you can experiment and, and build up your, your audience and know what you're doing. Um, anyway, so I'm really excited about like the next year to get to the things like I started my blog six or seven years ago and I've had all these, all these projects on the back burner for all of that time while I grew my business. So I'm kind of excited to like finally be at that point where I can, um, build, build and invest in like aggressive growth so that I can, you know, suddenly overnight be the world expert on creativity or, or any of this stuff. Um, so that's where I'm going. That's what I'm excited about right now. That is exciting, man. So if there is a listener out there right now who is wanting to publish a book or has that idea that they've been really wanting to get out there, what would you tell them to do? Um, How would they get started? Yeah, I have a little book called Bestseller. No, it, it's not a book yet. I made a course called Bestseller Blueprint. Um, which right now, like if you're on one of my lists, I've just been selling it as like a, um, an open offer instead of 197, it's like $17 just because I want people to have it because almost every author gets everything wrong on their first book. And I just like, it's such an easy thing. If you're willing to write the right kind of book, instead of just to like persist with writing your, you know, creative vision, a lot of people get hung up on, you know, writing the, the book they have inside of them. They're like, their mission statement. Um, and number one, like nobody else is going to care at all. And number two, you're going to get lost in the weeds and not know how to structure or organize it, which means you're never going to finish it. What most people do is they write, you know, tons of scenes and it's just all these notes and they get this big messy manuscript. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to finish it. Um, so starting off with structure, starting off with a little bit of organization can help so much and save you so much time. So that's kind of my recommendation. Um, Start with that course. I'll probably turn it into a free book or something, but it'll save you so much time to just focus on um, who your audience is. How can you communicate to that audience in a way that is going to satisfy them? Um, but yeah, then that, that course is kind of like, I made it for people to write good books faster so they don't 
get lost. And, and I know that like after they finish the book, which is the thing that everybody has the hardest time with, then, you know, of course they'll, they'll buy something else from me, a book design or book marketing, but I can't, like none of that stuff will matter if they haven't written a good book in the first place. So I'm kind of trying to drive everybody there because then whether or not they buy anything from me, at least they'll have a strong, a strong start. At least they'll be able to finish the book, which is like the first hurdle. Hell yeah, dude. Thank you for providing so much value to my audience. I appreciate you, dude. Sure. We appreciate you. Awesome. Derek, thank you so much again. You really came today and you gave us so much great information for anybody out there who wants to write their own book, anybody out there who is an aspiring author who's looking for the classic traditional publisher to publish that book that they really want to get out there. Well, this was an episode that I think you showed us all that you don't have to do that. And like you stated, many people who are out there like you are making way more money than the people who have published traditionally throughout the history of publishing. And thank you for that. Please remember, folks, that he did offer us a great bonus. So at the bottom, if you are a writer and you want to get the starter course on how to write books that sell, he's giving you 91% off. So it's a great opportunity. So please be sure to click that link below and get that starter course. Please remember, if you're a first-time listener, to pull out your phone, hit the subscribe button. Also remember to rate and comment on this episode after the episode. It really helps me within the ratings and just gets the misfits and rejects message out there. I hope you're enjoying these episodes, getting a lot out of them. I think you all are so very beautiful, and I really hope that you are beginning to design that life that you've always dreamed of for yourself. I'm out here designing mine. I am in Myanmar as I publish this episode, and just my eyes are just constantly being awed and amazed by the sights I'm seeing, the smells, the taste, and just the people. They're so kind. I mean, again, I come to a lot of new places around the world that I'm always shocked at how under the circumstances in which they live, they can just be so kind and helpful. And I haven't been disappointed here. They're just some of the nicest people I've ever met. And the country is absolutely gorgeous. If you ever get a chance, this country is changing rapidly. Get here as soon as you can because it's a beautiful place with beautiful people. And again, the history here is just incredible. So stay tuned. I have a lot more great episodes coming your way. I have been interviewing a lot of cool people on my travels. You're going to have a lot of valuable, inspirational episodes coming your way. So stay tuned. Again, I think you all are so very beautiful. And I'll see you next time. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.